0: In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. My guest today is my good friend Robert Blevins. Robert is managing editor at Adventure Books of Seattle and co-author of Into the Blast, the true story of D.B. Cooper. Robert has spent the last 10 years working on proving Kenny Christensen was the infamous hijacker. Kenny Christensen worked for Northwest Oregon Airlines, the airline that was victim of the D.B. Cooper hijacking. Robert can be a controversial character in the Cooper world, but he's only been great to me. I hope you enjoy my talk with Robert Blevins. Alright, hey Robert, how's it going?
1: Pretty good, pretty good.
0: So, uh, how did you get started with D.B. Cooper?
1: Well, um, I'm the managing editor for a small press called Adventure Books of Seattle, and uh, a guy named I saw an article about um, a guy named Kenny Christensen, and it was done by uh, author Jeffrey Gray and um, private investigator New York private investigator Skip Porteous was checking out Christensen, and and he was talking about a book, possibly writing a book about him. So I contacted him. And said, why don't you send your book over here and we'll take a look, you know, because Cooper was from the Northwest anyway. So he sent me this um, manuscript, and some of the evidence was pretty good against Christensen, I thought. But I told him, what you don't have is you don't have interviews with the people that Kenny actually knew best, the people in the Northwest that knew best, and you need that, you know, for the book. So he, since he was, he'd already been out here and done his investigation, he was back in New York. He actually recruited me. To do all the interviews, go out and do all these interviews. So I did that for about a year. That's how I got into it.
0: Had you done any research on DB Cooper before this, or been interested in it at all? I didn't know any more
1: about DB Cooper than the average Northwest person. You know that. You know what everybody knows is about my
0: age. You know. So when you first heard about Kenny Christianson, did you you thought it was the evidence was pretty good, but you hadn't researched any other suspects or anything like that?
1: No, I hadn't. I I, uh, <laughs> I was actually publishing other people's books and and editing privately for people, and sometimes I would write a sci-fi book, you know. But no, I had I had no experience in this kind of thing um, at all before I got into this.
0: So once you got started working for Skip, what was the first thing you did?
1: Well, um, he sent me a. I had to sign this agreement of confidentiality, and then he sent me a big box of files on Christensen and and some of the people that he knew. He had done background checks on them, and he asked me to con- uh, contact these people and try to get them to talk about Kenny. So I got the files, I reviewed them, and I started setting up interview appointments. Some of them were cold calls, and it kind of went from there.
0: Who was the first person you reached out to?
1: Um, let's see. Um, that would be, let's see, was it Bernie Geisman or his sister? It was Bernie Geisman. I interviewed Bernie Geisman up in near Port Angeles, Washington. <clears throat> he was a good friend of Kenny's, and they had worked together on Shemmy Island. And then later they worked together at Northwest Airlines. Uh, generally speaking, um, Mr. Geisman would be Kenny's boss. Uh, and on Shemi, uh, Kenny was the gopher, and Geisman was the mechanic, and they would work together fueling and oiling planes and Kenny would sometimes clean out the interiors. Um, He was up there for about four years, and um, then he came back to Seattle.
0: And that was after he was a paratrooper?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was after he was a paratrooper. I was trying to think of the exact date. I think he was there between uh, approximately 1949 and 1950. Uh, Yeah, 1950 to
0: 1954. And when you reached out to Bernie, what was his reaction?
1: Well, I drove up to Port Angeles, and uh, I, I knew where he lived, but I didn't have his phone number, and so it was going to be a cold call. Uh, I, I just drove up, and I waited in my car for a minute. He lived in this fabricated home, uh, beautiful view of the Olympics from there. And I finally got the nerve to walk up on his porch, knocked at the door, and I knocked at the door, and then this woman came to the window. And just looked at me and just stared at me, and finally she wasn't going to open the door. So I held up my business card to her and said I wanted to talk to Bernie. So she left for a while, and, came, and then he came out and talked to me on the front porch for about half an hour. Uh, at first he was really friendly, you know. I, I, he asked me why I was there, and I told him. Well, I, I kind of fibbed to him a little bit because I didn't want to put him on defensive right away. I told him I was doing an autobiography on Kenny Christensen's life, and if there was anything he could tell me about Kenny. So he went on for about 10 minutes. He's saying, ah, Kenny and I were good friends. You know, he was at my wedding in 1968. I, I worked with him on Shamya for you know a few years. And, and then later, we were at Northwest. I was doing mechanic. And he was, uh, he was a purser on the, on flights to the Orient. You know, he went on for about 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden, he stopped. And he looked at me and he said, why are you here again? Why are you asking about Kenny? And, and that's when I decided to come clean.
0: Well, because if he wasn't D.B. Cooper, there's nothing real interesting about Kenny Christensen, is there, to do a
1: biography? Yeah, you know, I I don't know what made him decide that maybe I was there for a different reason, but anyway um i told him well um he's i showed him some paperwork from skip you know and the article by jeffrey gray the famous article by jeffrey gray right uh he was actually the first person to check out christensen and i said well he's a suspect in the db cooper hijacking and we think he might be cooper and he mr geesman turned white as a ghost right there and he didn't want to talk about it anymore he said uh oh no kenny couldn't be the guy uh no no way and um he just didn't want to talk to me anymore. So I, he, he said he would send me some pictures of he and Kenny together, and then uh, he basically stopped the interview. <laughs> so I went home. Oh, before he did that, though, he, he, point, he told me that if anybody was guilty, it wasn't going to be him. It was his ex-wife up in Twisp, Washington, <laughs> and that I should speak to her, Margie Giesman.
0: So didn't you, did you immediately want to talk to her? Is that who you uh, went and
1: spoke with next? I, not next. I went and actually spoke to Bernie's sister next on Fox Island. Um, and it was that when I, after I did that interview, then I was beginning to suspect that Mr. Geeson might be involved in the hijacking because he's pointing me to his wife and saying that um, she could have been involved, you know. So I go to see a sister, Donna Dorasco, and a very nice lady, a real, real church going kind of lady. And she was about 80, I guess. And when I told her, while, I told her right away while I was there that Kenny was s- suspected in the Cooper case, and she surprised the heck out of me. She said, Well, some of my friends and I, we thought he was Cooper at the time it happened, but we just kind of dismissed it later because he seems like such a nice guy. You know, um, I got that a lot. People would tell me how nice a guy Kenny was.
0: <laughs> it's pretty crazy. If it, if it wasn't him, there's no reason for these people to be acting this way.
1: Well, that's true. Um, I got I got some key pieces of information from um, from Mrs. Androsco. She, uh, f- well, one thing I did was I took out the the official FBI picture of the tie and the tie clasp, and it, and I didn't I blanked out the parts what said where it came from and what it was, and I just pushed it over to her and I said, "Does this mean anything to you?" And she looked at it and she says, "Well, I don't know about the tie, but that tie clip, I've seen I've seen Kenny wear that a few times." Um, you know, and then she also told me that he wore a. I showed her a picture of Cooper against a picture of Kenny, and Kenny had, doesn't have that much hair. And she told me, well, Kenny at the. She said he had a toupee, and he wore it sometimes on social occasions. But, but I never saw him wear it after the hijacking. She also said the same thing about the tie clip. And then she really dropped a bomb on me. Oh boy. Um, she said that five months after the hijacking in April 1972 that she had gone to her brother to ask Kenny for a loan of $5,000 so she could move she and her four kids into their own home. They were actually living with Mr. and Mrs. Geisman in Bonnie Lake. So you have the alleged accomplice, his current wife were living in the home and then his sister and her four children, they all come out from Minnesota and uh, she said that Geisman went to Kenny, got the money, brought it back to her, and and she paid it back in about two years. Um, And she bought herself a house in Buckley, Washington with it.
0: $5,000 was a lot for someone who wasn't making very much at the time.
1: Well, you know, according to NWA stuff, Northwest Airlines stuff, um, Kenny was getting about $512 a month before taxes. Now, that isn't really too bad in 1971, but I questioned how he could do that and... And loan her $5,000, you know, just five months after the hijacking. He, he had been writing letters home am saying uh, he had no money. He was down to eating the peanut butter. He was thinking about coming back home, you know. Because he was dealing with a bunch of strikes at the time
0: also, right?
1: There were, yeah, there were occasional strikes at Northwest, and he complained about that. You know, those, those $8 million jets are sitting on the ground. You know, he wrote home saying that. Um, now there's been some, there's been some controversy about how he got his house. Now, we know he lent Don Androsco the 5000 in April of 72, five months after the hijacking. And then three months later in July, he purchased a house in Lake of his own for about $15,000. Now, at first, uh, Skip and I, I believed that he paid cash for the house. Uh, w- we were corrected later on that. He didn't. He actually, um... He actually financed half of it through Seafirst Bank, believe it or not, that same bank that paid the ransom. <laughs> and the remaining 7500 is kind of a mystery. It's hard to find any paperwork on it, but I've got some testimony from the 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 uh, owner's son. The owners are dead now. But um, apparently the other 7500 was financed on a promissory note between Kenny and the owners. And when I interviewed the son, I asked him, well, Kenny took about 18 years to pay off the $7,500, but somehow the other money apparently got paid off much sooner. And it, it's, there's a few theories behind it, but um, it, anyway, but the, the owners of the home were actually really good friends with the accomplice, Geesman. Uh, he was the best man at their wedding. Their, their names are Ann and Joe Grimes. And he somehow, what we think happened is that Mr. Geesman, knowing that Kenny was looking for a house after the hijacking, Approached his friends, the Grimes, because he knew they had a home in the Bonnie Lake area where Kenny wanted to live, and said, "I have a friend who's Kenny who makes really good money from the airline. He's good for it, you know. And he, you know, if you, you know, if you sign half the house for him, no problem. And and being how Bernie was a good friend of theirs, and he had been the best man at their wedding, the Grimes went along with this.
0: It makes sense, friend of a friend kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, let's talk about Margie.
1: When Margie was the Giesemann.
0: first time you talked to her?
1: Um, after, after the interview with Bernie Geisman's sister, Dawn Androsco. Yeah, I drove up to Twist. Uh, I finally found her. She was kind of out in the country on this ranch on the Metau River. Uh, when I got there...
0: Did, did you talk to her before you got there? I'm sorry.
1: No, I didn't because uh, actually she didn't have a phone. She, uh, she didn't have a phone.
0: That's old school. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I drove up to this house, and and it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, a little ranch house on about, I'd say, 20 acres. I knocked at the door. She came to the door. I told her who I was, and she invited me in, and we sat there, and and I told her what her husband had said about Kenny, and she said she told me that Bernie was involved in the hijacking. But she was really reticent to give details, and and I I figured out after a while. I interviewed this lady seven times. I drove up there seven times. she was afraid of the FBI. She was. And later on, she showed how afraid she was.
0: And why was she afraid of the FBI? Just being prosecuted for the crime? Well, for her involvement?
1: yeah, I think so. Uh, we have a scenario on how it came down. It's kind of complicated, you know, in a way. It really is. It's hard to explain to people sometimes. But it's easier to understand some of the stuff that happened more recently if you understand how probably the hijacking actually went down. What we think is that... Bernie Giesman actually talked Kenny into doing it. And that uh, since Bernie Giesman had been at Boeing during the time they were building the 727s, he almost undoubtedly knew about the flight tests they were doing where they dropped the air stairs. Now, my own father worked for Boeing for a lot of years. He told me that every test they do on an aircraft that they're working on, everybody, all the employees know about it. It comes out in the newsletter. They talk about it. There's shop talk all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, they're taking the 727 up. They're going to do this today. You know, like that. It's it's just goes on at Boeing. And he thinks that Geisman told him that uh, yeah, you can drop the air stairs in flight and go right out the back. Um, we're pretty. Uh, we have evidence that shows that Kenny Christensen actually built the phony bomb that he used to hijack the airline at Geisman's house in the shed out back. Um, do you have a specific question about it? Well, or?
0: didn't you say um, a, a daughter or a niece or someone saw Kenny making that?
1: Uh, yes. Um, Dawn Andrasco, the, the sister of the compass, the alleged accomplice, mm-hmm. um, she had four kids. One of those kids was a daughter. She has three sons and a daughter. Uh, the daughter, uh, why, the, the whole, f- well, what happened was Mr. Geisman went on the Decoded show, Brad Meltzer's Decoded, the D.B. Cooper episode where they explored Kenny Christensen as the hijacker. And, and Mr. Geisman did not tell his family he was going to go on the show. So, and he was the last person to appear. Uh, Geisman's whole family watched the show because some of them had seen the previews and they knew who Kenny Kenny was. And they they said, hey, look, what's coming on? They're naming Kenny as the maybe being D.B. Cooper. We got to watch. So they watched. And surprise, the last person that they interview on the show is their Uncle Bernie. And they didn't even know he was going to be on there. And then when he started telling the cast, Stuff they some of those things were lies, and the family knew this. And and then this is when the niece told her kids. Well, now what I saw makes sense. Back in seventy one, she said, about six six weeks before the hijacking, when she was thirteen years old, she had walked into a shed out back of the Geisman home where they were living, and Kenny was inside. And she said what he was doing was he was taking filled coin rolls, quarter size. and he was taping them end-to-end end in twos using red electrical tape. And then he had these cut pieces of wire. And some of them he was taping to these rolls. And when she walked in, she didn't know what he was doing. You know, she didn't associate it with any crime or anything. And Kenny said to her, you're not supposed to be in here. You need to go. And so she took, She got a good look, but she turned around and left. And that was really the last time she ever thought about it until all those years later when she saw the Dakota show. And... You know and realized her uncle was lying about certain things so that's that's and then she she came forward about a year later contacted me
0: yeah in retrospect that Mm. seems pretty suspicious
1: (laughs) well yeah well when i first heard when she first contacted me with this story i took it with a grain of salt because nobody had really said anything about the bomb up until that point in, in records or in any kind of press releases except they were red sticks and a battery maybe and wires Nobody has said anything real specific about it. But about a year and a half after she came forward, the old Cowlitz County Sheriff's Notebook surfaced at the aerial store by the a guy who owned it now and he was flipping through pages and reading it and it's got notes made by the sheriff on the day of the hijacking where, uh, the FBI, where FBI agent Tom Manning out of Longview describes the bomb as being wrapped in red plastic and another and a report and the FBI report says it wrapped in red tape and that came out at about the same time and but her testimony precedes those things Yeah, I think that's more than coincidence. I think she actually did see the bomb. You know, I did interview her later, too, and she's a very ordinary sort with four kids, and I didn't see any reason she would lie. They don't want money, you know.
0: No, it's not like she's looking for fame or anything either.
1: No, I actually tested them a couple of times because the family contacted me, and we had a couple of meetings, and we're going to have another one soon, too. I guess they've got some things to tell me about Uncle Bernie. Uh, But anyway... um, I, I told them, you know, you could, I can set it up so you can sell your story to People Magazine, maybe get twenty-five, maybe $50,000. And these are just working folks, you know, at the, they're like lower middle class. They didn't even want to talk about money. They said, no, we don't want any money for this, you know. Is Bernie still alive? No, Bernie died, I think it was last October, finally. So that's why I'm trying to get one more interview, because the family has had about almost two years to talk to him uh, since that time. And I want to know, I want to find out. They've agreed to an interview, but they won't tell me anything by email. But they've said I could record it, you know, in video.
0: And then you interviewed Margie a few times, but then she sold her property, and it was like a condition of the sale that the lawyer wasn't allowed to tell anyone where she went? Yeah.
1: um, Well, what happened was uh, I interviewed her seven times, and the last time was... At the same time, they were actually filming the Decoded episode in October of 2010. Uh, I warned her that the show was going to come out in January and that that book that you have there it was going to come out about the same time. And she, she uh, to short t- not too long after the show and the book came out, she suddenly sold a ranch for $465,000. We have the documents on it and told her lawyer and her the bank officer that handled it now i gave these people's names and everything in our report to the fbi you know dave thompson from winthrop was the bank officer um i can't recall the name of, uh s renee e walt was her lawyer and told these people don't tell anybody where i'm going and they didn't either because i tried to find out but they wouldn't tell me a thing um, and she she stayed in Washington, but I couldn't find her. And she finally died in November of, or September of 2016.
0: It seems pretty suspicious that Bernie points to her and she points to Bernie as being guilty of being involved in the hijacking. If neither one was, then I, it would make sense to say we have nothing to do with it.
1: Well, they didn't act like innocent people because you, generally in my experience, when somebody's innocent, they're going to do stuff like yell at you, slam the door in your face, tell you, take a walk, you know, things like that. They don't start getting dodgy on you and making excuses. Now, uh, Mrs. Giesemann, um the only thing she did with me for six interviews is she tried to keep Kenny's name out of it. Now. I found out that her and Kenny were good friends right up until the day he died. In fact, the last trip he was ever able to make where he drove himself somewhere was he drove up to see her in Twisp. And we have pictures of the last visit. Um, That was in early 1994, and then I think he died in July of that same year. And she kept his secret, but, you know, you can just about see how it happened. You know, Bernie talking Kenny into it and they do it and then mrs Geisman gets involved because we know that mrs Geisman was not aware of the plan at the time it happened and that was dumped on her after the hijacking and so she was kind of forced into keeping the secret along with those two guys you know the two men and she did pretty good at that for an awful long time you know now when i finally did the seventh interview with her that was after i talked to her friend in sumner helen jones and helen jones told me some pretty good stuff and, and and when I went back to her in interview number seven, she finally admitted, yeah, it was Kenny that was with him there. And I said, well, you've told me that, they, that, the, that your husband and this other person that you wouldn't name or you kept giving me different names for <clears throat> went to Oakville to the shop property and waited there. And then they drove, you know, drove the hijacker to Portland, dropped him off, went back to Oakville to wait, you know. And now you're telling me all this stuff, and you're, you're trying to tell me it's not Kenny. You know, your husband's there, but not Kenny. And I said, your friend Helen Jones has already told me that that, that, she, that Kenny admitted to her six weeks after the hijacking when she saw him at the laundromat. Yes, he was with Bernie Geisman over that week. That They were gone the whole week. And, you know, and she said, okay, Kenny was, it was Kenny. She said, I just didn't want to tell you. And I said, well, now you, know, you're, you understand you're admitting he's D.B. Cooper, right? And she said, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, but she was a good friend. She, she held out really well for him. I thought I almost was proud of her in a way.
0: That's a big secret to keep, mm-hmm. especially for so long. I mean, I didn't find any evidence that Kenny Christensen was a suspect until Lyle, uh, Lyle Christensen, Kenny's brother, contacted who was it, Nora Ephron the director
1: well you know you have to understand Lyle he's a retired postal worker and he was about 80 years old when he did this and he's no investigator you know uh, he, he 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 gets kind of a romantic idea you know going on it you know oh it could make a great movie maybe but the truth was they really just want he really just wanted to find out for sure if his brother was Cooper and but he had kind of a funny way of going about it you know it, it was better that people like Skip and Jeffrey Gray and myself took over checking out Christensen because really, Lyle means well, but he, he didn't know what he was doing, you know.
0: It's an odd way to get the investigation started. hmm Do you think he was just looking for a payday out of it or something?
1: I think it was strictly done for the money. Yes, I think it was the money all the way. Did he
0: make any money off of this?
1: oh oh you mean Lyle yeah oh no I don't no no um, uh, he 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 doesn't want any money but what uh, I offered him was um, I said well look it, we signed a contract to do the movie um, maybe they'll do it maybe they won't I don't know for sure but it looks like they will but you never know so but he doesn't know it but Skip Porteous and I are each donating f- uh, 5% of our share to the family anyway oh nice you know just for GP, He's been real cooperative. I mean, he sends all these letters. He sends pictures all the time, you know.
0: And Lyle's still alive.
1: Yeah, Lyle's still alive. He lives in Morris, Minnesota right now. And his sister, or no, excuse me, his daughter Pam uh, teaches at the university there. Yeah, in Morris the Extension, I think.
0: Because... Um during the flight, he mentions that Minnesota is a nice country. Yeah. Isn't, that, is that, isn't that right?
1: That, well, he does say that. He also said um, looks like Tacoma down there, like he'd seen it from the air before. And he also knew that he, he mentions when they were waiting for the parachutes, he said should only take 20 minutes to get from McCord Air Force Base to the airport. He was pretty right on that. I mean, obviously, he was South Puget Sound resident, I think, really. I also believe that the hijacker, even if it wasn't Christensen, whoever it was, uh, did not want to jump where he did and was forced into it because they had some, he had some difficulty with the air stairs and was actually planning on jumping further north. Um, see, Oakville, if you look on a map of Washington, Oakville is just south of Olympia and a little bit west of it. That's where the shop property Bernie Geisman owned was. And what we think the actual plan was, well, Kenny had asked, or excuse me, I want let's say Cooper. Cooper asked that the air stairs be kept down on takeoff, and there's only one good reason for that. Um, he was planning on jumping not too long after they got, as soon as they got pretty much to jump altitude, he was going to go. Uh, they said no. So, you know, they get up there, and now he's got to try to open the stairs. The jet's moving along at 3 miles a minute. I mean, if you're delayed by... Just 10 minutes, you're 30 miles south of where you thought you were going to jump. So that's how he probably ended up down by the aerial area.
0: Yeah, that's right. He asked for the stairs to be down during takeoff, which would make sense if he wanted to jump out right away.
1: Yeah. I have a map where I made some notes about that, you know, like, well, if he he jumped— you know, in South Pierce County, Bernie Geisman would just have to drive up from Oakville, pick him up, and they would just go right back to buying Lake Sumner, the back road. You know, it would be pretty easy. I think that was the original plan. Um, but um, the hijacker jumped somewhere around Ariel.
0: Let's get to the uh, the hijacking. Okay. How do you think that Kenny Christensen did it from start to finish? Him and Geisman. Well— I think
1: the planning for it started during the summer. Now, the hijacking was in November seven in November twenty fourth, nineteen seventy one. But I actually think the planning started probably in the summertime, and Bernie Geesman talked Kenny into it. Kenny went to a hardware store and got himself a great big battery, a big old six volt, one of those old fashioned batteries. It's about the size, almost the size of a water bottle,
0: lantern battery or something, mm-hmm. right?
1: Um, and he made the, the bomb out of rolls of quarters and uh, tape and wire, you know, and then put this battery in there and made it look like it was a bomb. Now, I've been asked, why would he do it with quarters? And my thought was, well, back in 1971, pay phones were everywhere. You could find them in the country, like at every little gas station. You know, every country store had one. So if you land out in the middle of nowhere, you got to have a way to call somebody to get a ride, and and you know, and back then long distance, you know, it cost some money, so you'd have maybe break the quarters open and use them in the phone. Um, and wrapping them like that would actually serve two purposes. You could make the fake bomb, and you could also have quarters to call later. You know, you can't just put them in your pocket; they're going to fly out when you jump. I also believe that. Um, well, anyway, here's what I actually think happened. Okay, so they planned it over the summer, build the phony bomb. Uh, About six weeks before the hijacking, Mr. Geisman went to a bank repo sale down in Elma, Washington and picked himself up a used station wagon and and an Airstream trailer. Uh, He dropped the trailer off in Oakville where his shop property and the shop building was. He was going to put a house there, but it wasn't there yet. And then he took the wagon and came back to Bonnie Lake. And his wife got really angry because she said, you just bought this nice Airstream. You're going to leave it out there by itself. People are going to break into it he said don't worry everything's fine that's what he told her don't worry about it be fine on the on the day uh, prior to the hijacking tuesday you know he and Kenny he, he put he takes a station wagon drives down the hill to Sumner picks up Kenny uh, they drive to Oakville they stay on the trail overnight probably do some more planning maybe a couple of drinks you know and then the next morning mr Geisman takes him in the station wagon drives him to the portland international airport with his little briefcase in his paper bag whatever was in it and drops him off and then drives back up to oakville and waits at the shop building we're pretty sure there was a phone in the shop building too so kenny gets on the plane down in portland hijacks it you know the historical record's pretty clear after that what happened you know right and see tag get the money in the parachutes you know um they take off again from the airport now um on the way down, I always thought it was I always wondered why the hijacker picked the military shoot. No, I thought, well, that makes sense because Kenny, as far as we know, had not jumped since World War Two. So if he saw the military shoot there in that C, what they call C nine, he he would pick that rather than the sports shoot. As it turns out, a familiarity, out, yeah. You know, that C9, they call it like the... It's called the pitbull of parachutes because it can take a heck of a, a wall up, opening up. But we don't even think that happened. Here's what we think happened. Once uh, once the passengers were released and they took off again, um, Kenny's popping that one parachute to get the shrouds cords off it to tie the money bag up. Um, he's tying the money bag around his waist and dr- like a drop line like paratroopers do with a load down below, you know, on a the line. Then he... Uh, he opens the air stairs. Now, this is where I think a lot of people get it wrong. The air stairs will only drop in flight 24 to 36 inches. That's it. That's not very much of an opening. You've got a parachute on. You're carrying a heavy money bag. Are you going to lean forward and just try to make your way, you know, hunched over? The stairs are going to drop. You could easily go head over heels right out into the night. What we actually think happened is Kenny turned around and and put one hand on the rail and started backing down the stairs. And as he did, the stairs dropped lower and lower and lower. When we got to the bottom, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't care how good you are, I would not risk my life on a free on a free fall with just one parachute. Now, a couple of hijackers have, and they've they've made it. You know, I think the Heedy was one of them but what may have happened is you could actually pull the ripcord right there now experts parachute experts have told me this and it'll flutter out behind you and squid out squid out and it's going to inflate and then you're going to get pulled off the stairs pretty gently i mean it'd be a little bit of a shock but not that bad and down to the ground you go and uh, i think that's exactly what happened and then when he landed i think he took off you know i think he disconnected the the parachute from the harness and the container and Mm -hmm. use the container rather than that wrapped-up money bag because it looks like a bank bag. They have pictures of it, Mm -hmm. uh, representative pictures. And and we think you put the money in there and and put it on like a backpack and walked out. Um, I'm not sure what was in the uh, paper bag. Nobody really knows. Maybe a pair of boots, maybe a compass, a map, maybe, I don't know, food, something.
0: If he's he's jumping, hopefully it's gloves and glasses, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, um, that's, that's what I've always thought was in the paper bag. Was what? Uh, gloves and glasses. Oh,
1: it could be. Yeah, it could be that. I mean,
0: because yeah. everyone I've talked to about making a jump in colder weather, mm-hmm. they're like, if you don't have gloves and glasses, I mean, forget about it.
1: Yeah, that could be, yeah. Yeah, Kenny was a pretty experienced jumper, although he hadn't done it in years as far as we know. He wasn't a civilian jumper, I know that. They would have found that out
0: so you think he landed in the drop zone
1: i really That's... do yeah I, I think he did i think the pilots were right about that you know what happened is when the door opened when, when the when the air door opened an indicator light came on in the cockpit saying door open you know <laughs> and harold anderson the flight engineer told everybody well indicator light you know he's got the door open and they watched you know and they could feel some they can feel some little up and down motion in the plane and and then all of a sudden there was a bounce like this you know they call it I can't I think they call it the pressure bump and 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 then and then the indicator light went out for just a, a split second and then it came back on and what what that meant was that when when Kenny jumped from the end of the stairs or was taken off the end of the stairs. The stairs flew back up just enough to turn the indicator light off for a second and then settled back down. And the light stayed on like that all the way to Reno. So I I think it's a pretty good good bet he jumped right there over Ariel. I also believe that the parachute that they found in 2008 in Amboy was probably Cooper's because the FBI has been full of baloney about that chute since day one. And I have tried to talk to them about it and haven't gotten very far. But their answers don't make sense.
0: It's crazy that they didn't treat it more seriously, in my opinion, because it seems like the right type of parachute in Amboy, it's not a place that people jump out of planes on a regular basis.
1: Well, you know, the fact that the, the chute was... Ba- See, when if you land in a chute, whether it's a piece of cargo or a human being, there's going to be a container and a harness, and then the main part of the chute. Somebody, a human being, has to disconnect those things. And they were not if you after landing. If you, and somebody did that and took the harness and the container elsewhere and buried the the uh, nylon canopy. And that's pretty suspicious. Now, if they find the canopy and everything else, I mean the can the container and the harness with it, hey, it could be a, it could have been a cargo shoot, who knows. But when the FBI first found it, what they said in their initial stuff was, it's the right color, it's the, what they say? It's the right color, it's the right size, and it was found in the right place. And, and then later they said, it's not the shoot. And, uh, and they, when, I, when they were asked, why, how do you know it's not the shoot? They said, uh, we consulted experts and by a preponderance of the evidence. They wouldn't say what the evidence was. And when I questioned them later, they admitted to me that they had only talked to people on the phone. So I wondered, how, how could they ID a shoot over the phone?
0: <laughs> so then Kenny lands in the drop zone, mm-hmm. puts the money in the bag, walks to a phone,
1: I think that's basically what happened, yeah. He, I think he landed, disconnected the harness in the container, uh, buried the uh, the canopy, probably threw the harness somewhere else, and used the container, It's so basically a backpack, pat, transferred the money from the bank bag, walked out, called Bernie, you know, at the shop building, and um, Bernie probably said, why, you're where, how come you're not <laughs> up there? And, he said, "Well, I, I I had to. They wouldn't, you know, leave the door down for me. You know, I had to jump further south. You know, I went and picked him up. Um, they went back to dropped off Kenny at the apartment, and I think that was about the time that they that the, the famous thing. Well, we call it the picture. Really, you know, have you seen the picture? I have. I know yeah. exactly what you're referring to.
0: Mm-hmm. Him in the trench coat holding a similar bag and."
1: Yeah, we don't think it's the same thing. We don't think it's the same briefcase and the same paper bag used in the hijacking. But the photograph is actually dated. Back in those days, they would put the month and the year that it was developed. And this one says, I think it's uh, Feb 72. And, but there's a Christmas wreath on the door, and, and it's a picture of Kenny walking in through the front door of his apartment with kind of a surprised look, and then somebody's taking his picture. The only problem with that is we know Kenny lived alone. So uh, we who would take that picture, and why would Kenny hide it away for years? We think it was Bernie who took it sort of as a memento. Or maybe Kenny had him do it. I don't know. But it was found kind of in the back of a photo album when, after he died.
0: Do you have any idea on how they split the money or anything like that? Has anyone said anything to you about that?
1: Well, it wasn't a whole long after the hijacking that Mr. and Mrs. Geisman. well, first off, the sister and her four kids got to move out within six to seven months uh, to their own house in Buckley because they were, can you imagine, there's this couple, and then they've got, the the husband has a sister, and, and she's there living there too with her three b- young boys and a young girl, and that's pretty crowded for that place. So we think, you know, Kenny Lent, Don the money and she moved her kids out And so now there's just the two of them But it's pretty soon after that they actually moved to Oakville where the shop building was Built a house there and Margie got a job with the city uh, She said that Bernie was always out wheeling and dealing and stuff and mostly it was dishonest kind of stuff And everybody I ever interviewed about Bernie said the same thing about him. They said uh, he just wasn't honest, you know That doesn't mean he was involved in the hijacking but. It means he wasn't honest.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that's how it all went down, huh?
1: I think that's pretty much how how it went down, yeah. Um, We think over the next several years that Kenny slowly um, built up his collection of gold coins, silver coins, collectible stamps, um, he was uh, he was pretty frugal guy to start with. I mean, we, we know he didn't go on a big spending spree. Some of the stuff he did was really intelligent, though, I think, with the house because he financed half the house, $7,500, and then took 18 years to pay it off. $7,500. They must have paid a ton of interest but pay, probably paid off the promissory note in just a few months. Now, the son of the original owners told me that I asked him, is your was your dad the kind of guy that's gonna wait eighteen years to get his seventy five hundred dollars on a promissory note? And this this guy said, No, absolutely not. My dad's a cash on the barrel head kind of guy and he's gonna to wanna to get paid pretty quick or he would have taken that house back. Okay. You know, um it doesn't really prove anything, but it's I can just see why Kenny would do that, you know, because like if he stretches out this little mortgage for years, it actually helps him avoid suspicion if anybody ever came to him and wants checking out his spending, you know. They wouldn't even be able to find out about the promissory note because I couldn't find any records of it. It's sort of mentioned back door in one of the documents. <clears throat> but I mean, it, it got paid somewhere along the line. Um, and, and he was. Uh, we also figured he just hid the money up in the attic, that spot that the people from D, the Decoded show found, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. It is pretty interesting. Like you said, he was a frugal guy, but he seemed to have. A lot of money and assets when he died for someone who wasn't making a killing while he was alive well um he made some he made some, uh at the time of
1: the hijacking property was really cheap in the bond in this area it really was you could buy a, you could buy a house around here for a good house around here for like twenty twenty five thousand dollars um he was making investments in land up here after the hijacking, and even one before, where he just made these little tiny payments all the time. And not too long before he died in 90, like, I, I can't remember exactly, but 91 or 92, a couple of years before he died, he sold off this one big piece of property for a lot more than he bought it for. So it's hard to say where exactly he did with all the money. I mean, he was a real saver. So I think he probably just did like my, some people might do if they had a large stash of money hidden away. They just probably spent it here and there when they needed it and didn't get crazy about it and we think that's what kenny did and he probably laundered some of it on some of his overseas trips who knows um invested in different things sort of like laundered the money that way too because we know he was buying gold coins silver coins stamps stuff like that went to his family after he died
0: and he continued to work for the same airline that he hijacked.
1: He did. Um, he did sort of change his appearance, though. Um, he never wore the toupee again, and he put on a lot of weight. He started getting heavier. And when he was off work, he used to dress real sharp, and he started dressing in like overalls and farmer kind of gear, you know. And you know, the FBI, uh, it's there was an FBI there was an order that came out, I guess, after the hijacking instructing the FBI to check employees, but there's no record they ever did, and I, I really don't think they did. Um, it's hard, I, some stuff it's hard to explain to tell the truth, but um, we think you just went back to work and nobody noticed.
0: Well, I mean, if you were mad at the company you worked for, hijacking them for $200,000... And then going back to work on Monday, I imagine you'd have a pretty big smile on your face.
1: Well, maybe, you know, and people have said, why would he work for the airline after he did that? And, you know, the, and the answer to that might be if you quit, they might look for that. You know, if you suddenly quit and you had been with them for 20 years, all they have to do is do a quick background check, find out you were in the Army as a paratrooper, they're going to come to your door. And maybe Kenny figured this chances were actually better if he just goes back to work. Now, there was a couple of you know there are there are a couple of people that could have identified him but he was never brought up for identification and by the time he beca- actually became a suspect that really wasn't until October of 2007 and he'd already been dead for 13 years
0: yeah so there there is no proof that he was investigated at all before this? well
1: i don't think he was cuz nobody um he his name never even came up as a suspect until October of 2007 and he died in 94 so of colon cancer
0: Man, it would have been great to have uh, a a real confession from him on his deathbed.
1: Yeah, it's hard to say. Now, there is a funny thing, though. Uh, Bernie Geisman, when he was on Dakota's show, one of the things he said that set off alarm bells to me was uh, he started getting defensive with the cast. They were telling him, you know, you could tell us now. You're not going to get in trouble. I think Scott Rolls said that, the prosecutor guy. And he said, no, um, you know, I wasn't, I didn't do anything with any Kenny, Peter Christensen, and I was even at his deathbed when he died, you know, a while, like this. Okay. And I, I thought, wait a minute, Bernie wasn't, I don't think Bernie was at his deathbed. So I started checking, and I found out from the Christensen family that Bernie never went to his deathbed. He only called. He called about three days before Kenny died. And all the other times that Kenny had gotten calls, he was totally bedridden by then, and In really bad shape and he he was dying you know so all the other calls they would actually just hold the phone to his ear and he would talk and talk and then they'd hang it up when he was done this time Kenny said he had to he wanted to talk to this guy alone it was Bernie it was Mm -hmm. Bernie so everybody left and he talked to Bernie for about 10 minutes and and Bernie had not called called him in they had a falling out in around 1977, Margie Giesman said. So he hadn't called Kenny and let's see, that'd be 87, 17 years. And all of a sudden, Kenny's dying, and he's calling three days before. Well, why would he be calling? Why do you think he called?
0: Please don't tell the, tell the story of being D.B. Cooper, because mm-hmm. I can still go to jail.
1: Yes. I th- Well, yeah, and he probably used Margie, their, the friendship between Bernie and Margie, Excuse me, between Kenny and his ex-wife Margie geisman uh, at that time geisman was, is either getting divorced or he was in the middle of it or something. I think '94 he was getting divorced. Anyway, um, yeah, we think he called up to see if Kenny was going to make a confession, ask him not to. You know, you could get me into trouble. You know, you could get Margie into trouble. We could get arrested, and maybe perhaps that's why Kenny told his brother, "There's something you should know, but I can't tell you." I mean, I just can't think of any other reason, really. And why Geisman would bother with calling him?
0: But even that confession, his brother thought that he was going to tell him that he was gay, not that he was DB Cooper, right?
1: Well, the people have said that, but here's the here's the thing. I asked Lyle about that. Lyle said, Lyle, kind of laughed about that. Lyle said, we all knew he was gay by the time he was sixteen.
0: Yeah, and <laughs> I've seen that in the the Cooper community or the Cooper vortex, if you mm-hmm. want to call it that. That. People are like, oh well, it can't be Kenny Christensen because he was gay. Like, well, what does that have anything to do with him jumping out of a plane with two hundred thousand dollars?
1: Well, um, you know, if, during World War II, uh, it's different now. But during World War II, if you if you were gay and they asked you if you were gay and you said no, and they found out you were later, you could go to you could go to Leavenworth. You know, and plus a dishonorable discharge. I mean, it was a real risk. And his family actually brought that up to him when he was going to join. They said, Kenny, you know, if they find out, you're going to go to jail. Because it was serious business back then. You could not be, um, well, back then they called it being homosexual, you know. And they said, you can't, if we find out, the recruiter will ask you right up front if you are, are you Are you a, you know, are you gay? And, and you'd better answer no. If you answer yes, he's going to say, sorry, you can't join. So, uh, Kenny lied. You know he did, but nobody ever found out. Now, people that I've talked to about Kenny said you couldn't. He didn't put on effeminate airs. You could not tell he was gay just by talking to him. You'd never know. Um, he kept that pretty well in the closet, you know.
0: And then I guess some of the other things people are uh, are saying. Oh, it can't be Kenny because of this. The the height difference. Well, they pin Cooper yeah. at what five ten to six foot and. Kenny
1: was 5'8", is that right? Kenny was 5'8", that's right. Uh, his Army record says he was 5'8". Now, you know, now you look at... Uh, the, actually, w- when Jeff Gray's book Skyjack came out, he w- Jeff Gray was the first person ever to be allowed to see the actual handwritten witness reports. And it was kind of an eye-opener because people like William Mitchell, who was sitting right across the road from, from the hijacker, said he was no taller than 5'9", at, at the most. And one student said six foot, you know, one said five, ten to six foot. Other people gave, uh, all three students gave different facial combinations from the FBI's facial ID catalog. Nobody seemed to agree on much of anything, which is pretty typical, you know, in eyewitness yeah. accounts. I actually, uh, and these women were terrified at the time, you know, and the passengers didn't know. I actually trust their descriptions a little more. But, um, I, I brought this up one time, and people got the vortex got really angry, and they threw a lot of crap at me about. It. But what I said was one time was, "Have you ever tried to judge somebody's true height inside of a cabin of an aircraft?" Because I, I have. You know, like I gave the example of one time I was flying to San Diego. I saw former Seattle Mariners baseball player Brett Boone on the flight up in first class, and he, he, he I saw him walk on. I could have sworn he was six foot two or taller. I really thought he was tall. We get out on the tarmac. I'm five. 11. he was shorter than i was i saw him when we um getting at the luggage carousel i was surprised oh my god he's shorter than i am i could have sworn he was at least 6'2 out there you know walking down the aisle and i think that's what may have happened you know i think people just misrepresented his height because they it's harder to tell inside of an aircraft i think than it is like if you're standing next to somebody at the bus stop there's a big difference you know you see somebody in the open outside it's easier Mostly they're sitting, you know, maybe they stand up once or twice, but it's,
0: I think it's hard to tell. Yeah, none of the passengers would have seen him stand up. They I, were off the plane before he ever stood up from his seat, right?
1: Well, a couple of them did see him go to the bathroom, you know. Mitchell was one of them. Um, Mitchell said, no taller than 5'9". He said, oh, no, he's like 5'9", maybe. But then he wasn't in panic mode either, you know, being frightened to death by a bomb. I don't know. I, 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 the the witness descriptions. You know, here, here's an example I've used before. You know, you've heard of the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, they had posters of him everywhere. His description, his picture, all over all over Puget Sound. Um, it, they were in seven elevens. They're everywhere. Well, anyway, before Ridgway was arrested for the murders, they actually called him into the Green River Task Force, and these posters are everywhere. And nobody inside that inside the, they took his they took a swab sample from him. And years later, they got him on it, right? But at the time he came in, his description, his sketch, his everything is all over, plastered all over the walls of the Green River Task Force, and they don't even associate with him. I mean, go figure, you know. I I don't know. Yeah,
0: eyewitness testimony isn't the most reliable thing ever. Um, Once your book came out and you had done all the research, what did you think of the public's reaction and the Cooper Vortex reaction
1: well um, I think they went overboard on attacks against me but some of it I'll admit I deserve because I got a little excited about it and I was so sure that we were we hadn't even spoken to Geismans' family yet the decoded show had not really taken effect yet or anything and brought people out and so I kind of went a little overboard saying oh I'm 90% sure he's Cooper and all that and so I kind of deserve some of that flack you know but later, um, I thought they kind of went overboard with it, you know, especially when, after I submitted the, the 50. When we got to the Geisman family and I included all the stuff we found out after the book and after the show, this was a 55-page report with pictures. Uh, then they really got angry because uh, they couldn't. It was just the unmitigated gall to actually do that, you know.
0: The drop zone.
1: Oh, the Drop Zone, yeah.
0: The, the Drop Zone uh, website, the sky Skydiving Forum. Mm-hmm. The um, deep, yeah. That was a pretty crazy place. Mm, yes. <laughs> uh, what did you think when you first started posting in there?
1: Um, well, I found out a lot about the case I didn't know before, the actual case. I mean, I was mostly investigating Kenny and his possible involvement in the hijacking. I didn't really know much about the actual case itself and i found out a lot there um
0: because that thread on the drop zone had been going for a few years when you came on right
1: yeah it. uh yeah it got carried away and some of it, what happened was some of the members there started sending complaints in about other members and uh the administrator got tired of it and he, he locked it down now he was gonna he was gonna delete the entire thread and it's uh it's thousands of pages of some of the Really, the greatest evidence that's ever been collected on the case. So I contacted the admin after he his name is Sangiro, and I said I just begged him. I said, please, I know, I know it takes up a lot of bandwidth, but please don't delete it, okay? Because I told him why, and he said, okay. He said nobody's going to post there anymore, but I'll, I'll go ahead and we'll leave it up there in place. It, it did. It was. It was. It was a, it was a vortex area. It got pretty crazy.
0: From my view, looking out outside looking in, it seemed like the public reaction to the Kenny Christensen story has been pretty positive. Um, and you've gotten a lot of media attention. I don't know if maybe the Cooper community or the Cooper Vortex is, is jealous of that, or if they're just so adamant that it's not him, but they seem angry well, about it. Well— the, the
1: In in the Cooper vortex, there's one thing. It's actually, it's not really about solving the case. They like to solve little points on it if they can, but actually solving the case and naming a person that that was Cooper is, and that, you know, it's just, it's hard for them to accept because then their whole reason for existence and the discussions they do would actually come to an end and they don't like to think about that.
0: So you think it's better for the Cooper vortex that it remains unsolved and they Uh, can just fight about it forever?
1: You, definitely, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, you know, I uh, people push have pushed on me sometimes, and I push back almost as hard. Although I try to be more polite about it most of the time, but but I've I've kind of worked my way past a lot of that. You know, I I uh, I no longer allow anything negative on our website about the Cooper case or anybody else that's investigating it. Um, I even pulled a video and cut a half hour out of it because it had some negative stuff in it, and then I put it back up and there was this document I had. that was came from a uh, WordPress article where a bunch of people in Cooperland posted up over 300 of the most most filthy, obscene comments about they were naming me. They were naming my wife. I mean, it was terrible. And I actually copied every comment, put it into a PDF and sent it to Mart, Matt Mullenweg, the co-founder of WordPress with in registered mail. And I said, hey, you know take a look at this and what he did was he deleted this lady's entire wordpress account it wasn't really her fault she just wrote a harmless article about kenny christensen i made a little comment about it and all of a sudden all these people jumped on board with um they were impersonating everybody from fbi agents to other people that are known in cooperland to me sometimes they would say they were me and it got crazy i had to do something about it finally but I mean, it's toned down quite a bit from that. That was a high point, I think, or low, depending on how you look at it.
0: Well, I mean, a lot of that's still going on. People pretending to be other people, making weird comments and threats. Wasn't there a bomb threat? Oh, I never heard that one, no. Bomb threat? No. Oh, maybe I'm mistaken. But yeah, it's a pretty wild group of oh, people. Oh,
1: bomb threat. I know what, you, I know what you're talking about. Oh, you, you mean the incident at the Auburn Avenue Theater? Uh, that was a long time ago. Um, yeah, the first, after the, was it when, after the book came out? Yeah, after the book came out, uh, I was going to do a, a talk on Kenny Christensen with a slideshow at the Auburn Avenue Theater here in town. And uh, I made an announcement about it uh, at Drop the very next day, I never told anybody else. I didn't go to Facebook or anything. And the very next morning, I got a call from the head of the festival, Connie. Her name is Connie. And she said, Robert, we got a phone call. The city hall got a phone call saying, uh, if you show up at the theater, people are going to get hurt. I got really angry. I, it was obviously somebody from Drop Zone who made the call. Because I, I posted it like about midnight, and I got the call from Connie at nine, at like 9 or 10 in the morning. I mean, it had to be somebody there. I don't know who it was for sure. Um, for, and they asked me who could it be, and, and I named somebody that's known in Cooperland. I don't think I should name him. But um, I, did, I hadn't met him yet, but I named him. And so what they decided to do is they they weren't going to go after anybody, but they decided to station a police officer in the theater. And if this person came in, they were just going to talk to him. They were going to say, do you want me to tell who it was because he knows who he is? Sure. It was Bruce Smith. I named Bruce Smith as possibly because he was the only guy that's local here that I knew that was an investigator, and I had not met him yet. I didn't know who he was about. So they had Bruce's picture, and if he comes in, they're just going to say, Mr. Smith, uh, you didn't make this phone call, did you? You say these things. And if he says no, they just let him go in the theater, you know, no problem. Um, He got really angry about that, of course, and I I don't know if I really blame him. Now, a a couple of years later, I met Bruce at one of the aerial – D.B. Cooper parties, and I realized right after talking to him for two minutes, he wasn't the guy who made the phone call. There was no way. He's too nice. You know, he's not going to do that. So, uh, but ever since then, he hasn't. we haven't been really friends. <laughs> Although,
0: that's that's cra- so crazy just because you were going to do a slideshow on Kenny Christensen.
1: Yeah, we did it anyway. <laughs> we did.
0: Uh, do you have any regrets about – your involvement in the community or anything like that.
1: If it wasn't for the my my the things I have to do about the movie, if they make the movie, I'm supposed to review the script, you know, and stuff like that, and for accuracy, um, especially on the parts about Kenny. If it wasn't for the upcoming movie, I probably would have gotten out of this already, I extricated myself from the whole community because I was getting tired of it, you know. I mean, I know it happens on the internet and stuff, but I got I was getting tired of it after all those years. So, but. I'm probably going to not be... I'm not going to go public m- much after, if and when they make the movie. Hopefully, they'll start this year. After my duties with that are over, and I'm going to just more or less back off quite a bit. You know, I'll answer questions if people ask, you know, like that, but I'm not going to actively be posting out there about Kenny.
0: Well, let's talk about the movie. When did that come about?
1: Um, January of last year... Oh, no, excuse me. Uh, November of 2016, I was contacted by a production company in Los Angeles. What they said was they'd been, they had been researching the Internet and other sources anonymously and privately for about a year. And they wanted to do a movie about D.B. Cooper. And the funny thing was they, they said, we only found out about you when, you, when we went to uh, the place they called the, the D.B. Cooper Forum dot com. Mm-hmm and we saw, so many ter- we saw so many insulting things said about you there that we just had to find out who you were and why you never answered any of these things. So they, they contacted me by email. They found me at my main website, and I said, well, the reason I don't answer is because I got banned there. <laughs> 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 they, they just couldn't say whatever they want. You know, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, we had a war actually going on for a while where, where they would say these things, and I would quote them on my website and give responses, you know, and, it went, and they actually got it shut down once, so uh, maybe twice, I think. So I finally decided, okay, enough is enough. I removed everything negative off the website, and I just don't feed into it anymore. Anyway, so um, the movie you want to know about. The movie? Okay, so we went back and forth for a while about a possible movie about DB Cooper, and and they said, can you can you send us any more about Kenny? So I sent them the 55 favorite report, and then I decided to take a chance, and I sent him a bundle of files that we had. That the public had not seen and, and I was keeping confidential for now and I said, well, okay So I sent it to them along with the other stuff and they came back a week later and said um, we want to do the movie Well, you know, we'll, we would like to sign you to a one-year option, uh, you know for the movie. I said, okay So they paid me this certain <laughs> amount of money. It wasn't a whole lot and um then they said, we're going to name Kenny as the hijacker as a matter of historical record. We're convinced he was the guy. They Well, they had information that we knew from Geisman's family, stuff like that. So uh, the re- they didn't get it done last year. It, I signed the contract in January of 2017. They didn't get it done last year, but they paid me more money this year in January and said, we're really going to try to get it done. So we're going to partner up with one other the studio and we're going to do it together. And the one thing I can really tell you right now is they said nothing would start before the Oscars, so that was in March. And that right now they are um, they're trying to cast the film right now. And they're they're doing interviews for casting and they're uh, they're they're going to talent agencies trying to cast it. And
0: uh, I'm just waiting, you know, just like everybody else.
1: <laughs> if
0: you got to cast the movie, who would you pick to play Kenny Christensen?
1: Oh boy, I don't know mm-hmm. um <laughs> hmm. you know I I haven't really thought about that um, hmm, who would play Kenny hmm. well they'd have to it'd have to be more than one person because they, they're planning on doing it from the time he was young you know, until he got older when he, as the hijacker I, I don't know um, I, I really don't have an answer to that I, it's hard I, <laughs> I, mm. you don't have to answer that question
0: mm. Uh, the other DB Cooper movie with uh, Robert Duvall, gosh, the name uh, escapes me at the moment.
1: Oh, uh, gosh, what is that one? Um, D. The B- Pursuit of DB yes. Cooper. Yes.
0: That movie is so terrible.
1: Well, yeah, it's it's not. It's supposed to be more of a comedy, you know. The Dukes of Hazzard meets DB Cooper. Yes, you know,
0: exactly. Like that. Yeah, that's exactly what it <laughs> is. <laughs> Uh, other than Kenny Christensen, uh, just as far as being interesting, who's your favorite Cooper suspect?
1: Oh, I uh, until Christensen came along, I thought maybe it was Richard Floyd McCoy. Mm-hmm. I really did because he looked the most like it, and there was pretty good evidence he might have done it. You know, I don't know. I still, if something came along and and totally, I had to admit that Kenny wasn't the guy. I would still, I would definitely go back to him. You know.
0: Well he was able to pull it off, mm-hmm. I mean the jump I mean not the the first hijacking because he did that similar one outside of Utah,
1: yeah, yeah, he jumped from higher and with uh two and a half times the money, so he was carrying closer to fifty fifty some pounds of money uh instead of twenty two and uh he jumped from higher up and still made it to the ground um there's been a, a couple of people that have actually done it like that. Um, you know, gone higher, jumped big load, you know, and, and still made it to the ground alive. Um, I, I don't see any reason why Cooper didn't make it. And to tell you the truth, I think they would have found something by now. You know, body, parachute, briefcase, something. Yeah. You know, and they haven't found a thing. Just the money on Tina Bar. Hmm.
0: And I always go back to there would be a missing person. And the FBI looked very closely at that. Mm-hmm. and there wasn't there wasn't someone who was missing who could have been cooper i mean there were a couple suspects um like on the db cooper forum there's like a dick lesby and i forget the other gentleman's name um, but they yeah. went missing kind of around the time they weren't mm-hmm. really in the area
1: yeah Dick up so yeah he stole like eight thousand dollars out of a safe where he worked and they know he boarded a pl- flight from Mexico, and they think he was with a woman, but he's never seen again. Well, they don't know what happened to him. I actually kind of – there the woman. there's a woman who's – that's her dad, you know, her, her biological father, mm-hmm. and she's on the D.B. Cooper him and I actually kind of like her because she has a personal stake in it, you know, and I hope she finds out what happened to her dad, you know.
0: Oh, for sure. But it is crazy that the FBI thinks that Cooper died in the jump, when there really isn't any evidence that he did die in the jump.
1: They didn't start saying that until after they found the Tina Bar money. They said, "Oh well, then maybe he went into the Columbia, and you know, down by in Portland, and then the money went up the river a few miles, and that's you know proves maybe he died. You know, in the jump, went into the Columbia." My problem with that is, they did find shards. Of The currency buried down about three feet, but, but the only other money was three bundles in the same spot. And they weren't, you know, they're individually rubber-banded. So I'm asking, how did that happen? How did three end up together miles from where he supposedly jumped? No, nobody really knows, you know, nobody really knows how the money got there. But my theory is is that what happened was, well, first off, the citizen sleuths, the people who were actually did tests on that money they found, said there was, they were sure of one thing, the money was not out there for nine years. Okay, it wasn't out in the elements for nine years. It would have been totally rotted. Rubber mounds would have been totally gone, whatever. So how did the money appear later? My thought is this. Now, the statute of limitations, there was a statute of limitations on this hijacking, and it was due to run out five years later. November 24th, 1976, it would have run out. Well, <clears throat> the day before that happened, uh, two FBI agents went to a friendly federal judge in portland and got what's called a john doe warrant and and the judge wasn't real happy about issuing it because you're going around people's you know people's rights by doing that but so he restricted it only to the hijacker himself no accomplices but he granted it and this was big news all over the northwest i saw it on the news it was everywhere oh they can keep looking for cooper forever now because for a couple of weeks before there were news stories saying, oh, it's coming up on pretty soon. If Cooper's alive, you know, he can walk in any police station. They can't do a thing. That was true. So, but they went around it. Now, I was trying to imagine how that would be for Kenny. How that would be for Kenny Christensen. Now, can you imagine, like, if you're coming up on it. You've heard about it on the news. It's going to run out soon. And you're waiting for that day, waiting for that day. And at the very last moment... The FBI just goes around that and now they can look for you for life. I mean, it must have been crushing, you know So what do you do? <clears throat> My thought is maybe you take some of the money And you try to do a plan now I, I don't think you got to be careful how you do this you go out and throw it out in the middle of the woods <clears throat> Even if the FBI was taken to it, they're gonna look around. They're gonna find nothing else. They're gonna know you're still alive What are you gonna do? Water is the only way it has to be somewhere kind of near the hijacking. So what I think happened was I think I think if Christensen was a guy that he took three or four bundles of the money, put them inside of a paper bag or something else like that, and threw them into the Columbia not too far from where Tina Barr was and just let them go away, you know, hoping they'd wash up somewhere. Well, they did, but what happened probably is it looks like they may have gone through a dredger and then got shot up onto Tina Barr, and that's the perp- that's how the shards got buried there. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it just came together in one spot, and he probably wasn't counting on that. Um, that's why the money, I think he did it sometime after 1976, and then they found it in 80.
0: Do you think Kenny and Bernie had any problem spending that money? Well, the, I, <clears throat> I would None th- of the money ever turned up.
1: That's true, except for that money, you know. But uh, on the other hand, now, now the story has gone around with uh, the FBI has said sometimes, oh, we looked for that money for years. Now, Himmelsbach said that. Well, I contacted Treasury Department officials in 2009, and I asked them about this. And they said, they said, we get truckloads of used and damaged currency every day. Even if the FBI had asked us to do this, to look through individual $20 bills, we couldn't have done that, you know. Uh, We may have done it for two or three days. That's it. The banks gave up their search. In 2008, Special Agent Larry Carr went on the radio. You can see it at Wikipedia. You can hear his show. That he did, he he admitted that within three to six months after the hijacking, every bank had given up the search, everyone, and because uh, they had to
0: compare every twenty to a list mm-hmm. of other twenties. I mean, that's a daunting task.
1: What was the list of? Thirty-six pages long, ten thousand different non-sequential numbers. It's crazy. Uh, who could do that? You know what I mean?
0: No, it wasn't like they had a machine then that could quickly scan each bill. Yeah. To search for it, you had to have somebody looking through a list manually. Yeah, you, yeah.
1: You could scan them and record them, like take pictures of them, but you couldn't. There was no computer that back then that could scan and compare to something else. So yeah, it's.
0: I'm not surprised that none of the other money was found. I mean, I think it. I think he could have spent it.
1: Yeah, you, you could if you just waited. You know, the first evidence, if you're talking about Kenny, the first evidence that actually any of the money really might have surfaced was six months after the hijacking in April of 72 when he loaned the 5000 to Don Androsco. And, and, you know, that was probably laundered too. You know, Kenny went overseas a lot. It wouldn't be hard to, you know, drop off five hundred or or 1000 there in some bank in Japan, you know. Uh, who knows? I mean. That's a good point. I, I think he kept it for a long time. He was a real meticulous kind of guy. Now, they think he kept it in that that hiding spot that was built in his attic of his house. And then you can just see him just taking out some once in a while, you know, and using it here and there. Who's going to know, right? Um, He didn't
0: have a flashy car or anything like mm
1: -hmm. that. No. He never had to really worry about money after that. I think any of his major purchases were just maybe a couple of pieces of land, you know that he sold for big profits later
0: did you try and get his DNA
1: um, to give to the FBI well he was he, he didn't come up as a suspect until 07 he was dead in 94 I do have a sample uh, sealed still sealed um, of his brother's DNA Lyle I have it at the office um, haven't done anything with it yet um, I offered to send it to the FBI and they, they uh, they said, "Well, we'll we'll ask you for it if we think we need it," but they haven't asked, so it's ready for them anytime if they want to try comparing it. Uh, now, the, the FBI agent uh, Fred Gutt, told me that the the, sam- the sample that they got from the time, they were only get able to get partial profiles, and he said, "It if you have somebody's DNA and you match and you compare it to this, you can't say." it's the same and that's the person he said the only thing that you can do is you can eliminate a person with it there i guess that's what he said you can you can eliminate someone with it but you can't positively identify them there's not enough on the tie whatever that means i'm not a dna expert
0: what's well, a shame the fbi lost the cigarette butts oh it really was
1: <laughs> mm. you know uh the uh the, the most, the, A lot of stuff we actually found out a long time after the book and everything came out. And I think the most damning evidence really that happened lately was the Troy Bentz testimony. I just, it's been, we documented it so well. It just doesn't seem like, any, I'm sure he didn't make it up. There's just no way because, do, do you know about Troy Bentz? I don't know. No, oh. go ahead. Um, uh, uh, let's see, when did this happen? Okay, the FBI closed the case in July of 2016. And in August of 2016, I was contacted by a guy named Troy Bentz. And he sent me his name, his history, where he lived, his phone number, his job. He had a security clearance with the government and his two friends. And they worked for the government too. And they had security clearances. He gave them their names and where they lived, phone numbers and all that stuff, where they were. And then he told me this story about his two friends asked him to car, want to carpool to a game, to a Washington Nationals baseball game okay so they this is about a month after the the case was closed they're going up to the game they pick up a fourth guy that troy doesn't know this guy turns out to be uh john john jarvis a 15-year veteran of the fbi he's he's a special agent he works in uh quantico in behavioral profiling they're all going to the game and uh, jarvis is telling about different cases he did he said i used to work murders a lot you know but now i do this and and they they get to the game and uh when they leave they go to a restaurant to have a bite to eat before going home and troy just out of coincidence had read the book into the blast just a couple weeks before so he knew about christensen he just couldn't help himself he he asked the fbi agent he said i heard you guys closed the db cooper case uh, last month and jarvis basically told him yeah uh, yeah we did and uh he said um well, we found out who he was, and he's dead. And, and Jarvis said, oh, excuse me, uh, Ben said, Kenny Christensen? And the FBI agent wouldn't actually say yes, but he nodded. He went like He nodded like that, up and down. And, and, and Ben asked him again, and he did the same thing. And, and then he just, he was stunned, you know. And, and his friends heard this stuff too. They were sitting at the same table. And that's when he contacted me. Now I think Jarvis felt okay about doing that because the people he were working with, he, that he was with, they all had security clearances with the government. Bents works for the U.S. Navy uh, as an engineer, and I gave him all this information in the report. I didn't. I, I actually did an article about where I named everything on him. You know, I think it's. Now I contacted the FBI about. It, they didn't deny it happened, and they didn't say, "Oh, Bents didn't say that." They just said. Well, maybe he was just giving his opinion. (laughs) But, you know, the thing that's wrong with that is that Jarvis was responding to a question of why did the FBI close the case? And that requires an affirmative answer, you know. And, and And his affirmative answer was we closed it because we found out who the guy was, that it's Kenny Christensen, and that Christensen is dead, you know. Okay, you know the only the the movie producers are actually going to use Jarvis's name and, and cast this part of the story and actually put it on film because they're that confident. Benz uh, gave us everything I, I made him verify everything you know I made him verify where he lived his phone number, his friends' names, their phone numbers, where they worked, you know all that stuff. I wasn't going to just take this on faith you know because that's a pretty big deal to say that an FBI agent said that you know so um And I haven't heard a peep about it. It's been on the internet. I name him. I got Jarvis's picture. Agent Jarvis's picture is right there in the article. A lot of people have seen it. Haven't heard a peep from the FBI about it. Not one. It's been out a while. More than a year.
0: Have you heard from Jarvis about it?
1: Mm -mm. Um, Bruce Smith, uh, the investigator, tried to contact him, but he hasn't answered him. So I don't know.
0: Why do you think the FBI closed the case in 2016?
1: I think they closed the case because... Uh, less than a year before we sent them the 55 page report on Kenny with the pictures and we have no way of knowing what they did with it but they knew it was coming and what I think was at first I thought maybe they didn't check it out but on now looking back now I think they may have made at least a cursory check and went around and maybe found out something we didn't know that maybe that Kenny was the guy and then that's why they and then you know less than a year later they just closed the case without saying another word i mean it kind of goes together really you know that we would send the report in june of 2015 and then in july of 2016 they would just suddenly close the case and then the following month that agent jarvis would would say that it was done because they found out that it was kenny that he was dead and anyway and that's it right. you got to kind of wonder i mean I gave enough information so, that, like, say, if a major news service really wanted to check that story out, they could. You know, they got names. They got they got the name of the agent. What more do they need? You know, Bence even gave us the score of the game and the actual game they went to. They were playing the Rockies that year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> do you think one of the reasons they closed the case is because of how, you know, some people think they handled it really poorly? Well.
1: They, they made some mistakes. I think the only mistake, they tried hard, but uh, I think maybe when you have somebody that just comes out of the shadow sometimes and has no previous criminal record, it might be hard to catch him. Now, when Jeffrey Gray, the author Jeffrey Gray, was doing his book Skyjack, he interviewed FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach, the first guy that worked on the Cooper case. And Himmelsbach told him, well, no, we didn't check out uh, uh, airline employees because if you knew imp- airline employees like I do, you'd know that... They're head and shoulders above ordinary Americans that would never do such a thing. And Gray simply wasn't buying that story. He says so in his book. He said there are criminals in the airline business. Of course. So the FBI, it just never occurred to them. They always thought it was some civilian skydiver, you know, um, or somebody in the military that was a skydiver like uh, McCoy, you know. Or somebody that was using a drop zone regularly. You know, why would some guy who just jumped 17 years before during the war suddenly decide 17 years later to take the jump of his life? That would be hard to narrow down. you know. And then they never looked at employees. It never even occurred to them that it would be an airline employee. So they just kind of missed the boat right away.
0: Why do you think Kenny picked the name Dan Cooper? hmm.
1: <laughs> Boy, I don't know I've been asked that a lot of times you know the the, the Dan Cooper comic maybe I guess you know You, you wonder about it there, It's 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 hard to say you know Kenny worked on Shemya for a certain amount of time But we can't be certain that the comic was even out during the time he worked there. They had a lot of Canadian planes coming in uh, A couple of the employees at Shemia who were there around the same time as Kenny said that uh, everybody that flew in, all these, if they had books or magazines on board, they donated them to the Shemya Island Library because these guys had nothing else to do. No TV, no, you know, there was just books and magazines.
0: It was just a refueling and stop, wasn't it?
1: It really was. It was a hard life. It was. They called it Shmoo, you know, or the Rock, you know. It was just, yeah, it was a rough place to work. It's possible that he saw the comic and maybe took the name from that. I, I just don't know. It could just be coincidence, too. You know, I, I don't know.
0: It is a pretty generic name. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other thoughts, Robert?
1: Well, I'm uh, I'm just hoping that uh, they hurry up and get started on the movie. And um,
0: I sure hope so, too. I'd yeah. love to see a good movie about D.B. Cooper.
1: Well, it's going to be the first dramatic feature film on the hijacking. Nobody's ever done that before, you know. I told the producers that we, we've done a lot of Skype, a lot of email, a lot of phone calls. And I said, you know, nobody's ever actually done a dramatic feature film about the case. And then they asked me, well, why do you think that is? And I said, well, because nobody's been able to write the ending yet. <laughs> you know, you have to have an ending to a story like that. You can't just do the story of the hijacking and then leave people hanging. I mean, were, that would, you know, so the producers said, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make this, we're going to tell people right at the beginning, at the end, this is what happened. They're going to name it like this is. They're not going to say a maybe or any of that junk, which has really surprised me. But with Giesemann's, uh family's testimony, I think they feel pretty certain on it, you know. And the thing with J- they're going to go with the, the agent Jarvis and the Bent stuff, you know, and everything. So, I mean, they'd have to. If the FBI wants to challenge that, let them, you know. Maybe Bent. I'd like to hear Agent Bentz tell me why he said that, you know. Maybe it's because um, he knows something that we don't works out at want you know
0: it is Skip still looking into Kenny or
1: well I've had to more or less take the reins on that because uh Skip is uh he has health issues I mean he's not he's not in imminent danger of passing away but you know he has some trouble with the keyboard things like that so you really can't do much anymore I I never thought it would go this far <laughs> to tell you the truth
0: <laughs> when you first uh heard about this you didn't think you'd take you down this road. Oh, not in my wildest dreams. And consume so much of your life.
1: Oh, yeah, I just, yeah, not not in my wildest dreams, no.
0: Have you talked to uh, Jeffrey Gray about the movie at all?
1: Um, I I sent him an email and offered, uh, I told him that uh, the production company was willing to offer him some money to help review the script or do consulting, and they might name him as a co-producer, you know, but I think he's got another thing going called True Inc. That's uh, pretty big, and they actually just got a racehorse, so he's pretty busy. And I, I think he doesn't want to get mixed up in the vortex.
0: Yeah, I can certainly understand. That.
1: Right? Yeah, I think that's about it. Uh, you know, if people have any questions about it, they can, um, they can drop by your website or where do you do you have, do you have one going yet, or you're going to nope. right. You'll add it to your podcast, Probably. I'm sure.
0: yeah. yeah, just a discussion board or Facebook group.
1: Well, the the basic contact is you can just go to our main website at uh, adventurebooksofseattle.com, and uh, there's a page there called the D.B. Cooper Info Page, and stuff like your podcast it will be on there, you know. It's where all our main links are for everything D.B. Cooper.
0: Or your book, Into the Blast.
1: Well, that's just a primer. You know, I tell people that. I said, really— they should, the the, the actual 55-page report on Kenny is a free download at our website. And I and I don't redact it, edit it, or anything. It's got people's full names in there and everything, boy. And I haven't heard, of, you know, I haven't heard anything bad about that, like anybody calling me up and saying, stop saying that about me, you know, because they don't. Um, and it's been a free download for over two years. But if they want to see the report, they can look for themselves, judge for themselves.
0: Do you think there will ever be another uh, DB Cooper get together? And there was DB Cooper Days and the um, symposium that was done a few years ago.
1: Um, they might do a symposium. I don't know if they'll do another party. They, they probably went. the The owner of the aerial store where they did the DB Cooper Days party for decades, she passed away a while ago, and her son took over. And so. And that was the point where the state and Canada recaptured all of her business licenses. And uh, the owner's name is Brian. He's a son. He's had some problems uh, getting the story back up to code, you know. And if he ever does, I'm sure he'll do another big party. But, uh, yeah, I would encourage another symposium. They should do it in the northwest somewhere.
0: I went to D.B. Cooper Days. I want to say it was 2013. Mm. Um, but I wasn't super interested in the story at the time. I was just there to drink mm. with my friends. Sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a good get-together. They had stew and mm-hmm. a cash-only bar. I stopped by there. I lived in Woodland, so I used to swing by there every once in a while just uh, you because know, it, it was novelty, that little bar. Uh, I mean, it, Donna had to open when she felt like it. So I would swing by, and sometimes it would be open, and sometimes it wouldn't. So, her hours were whatever she felt like.
1: Yeah, I've got a lot of pictures of that place. I really do. I I got them on file. Um, yeah, I missed Donna Elliott. She was a really nice lady. Kind of tough sometimes, but she was always fair. You know, she was a very fair lady. You got to give her that. Tough but fair. You know. You uh, know, I got to interview her one time. She was. Uh, she had kind of funny ideas about how, you know, she thinks the plane circled over and it was a big storm and all that. But, um, you know, I guess you could develop that kind of theory after a number of years. But, it, but she was the she was a great hostess, and uh, I think a lot of people miss her. You know. Well, didn't she claim she saw D.B. Cooper? Uh, I don't know about that, but she she said she thinks she heard the jet go over when it did.
0: All right. Well, um, I'll put your your website and a bunch of links to some of your YouTube videos in uh, the show notes too. So I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Oh, you're very welcome.
0: Thanks, Robert. Thank you for listening to the interview with Robert Blevins. If you're listening to this, go pick up a copy of his book into the blast, the true story of DB Cooper. He can also be found on his website, adventure books of or his DB Cooper blog, the DB Cooper You'll find a link to his book and his websites in the show notes. Thank you to Robert Blevins for speaking to me. Thank you to Russell Colbert for turning my conversations into a show I'm very proud of. And thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.